I never wear headphones. How do you take phone calls? You put them on your ear? Yeah. Welcome everybody to Startup Hype Man's Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, aka The Raj Nation. I am your show's host and the founder and creative force behind Startup Hype Man, helping startups everywhere build their hype by creating a message that sings. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. It's about the mindset, processes, and strategies to help you build a badass company. Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I would like to extend an invitation to join our tribe at StartupHypeMan.com. Enter your email address there, and you will never miss another episode of this show, getting an email in your inbox every single week when we drop new episodes on Mondays. You'll also get my weekly thoughts, strategies, and ideas on how to build up your hype and create a raving fan base. All right, let's dive in now to this week's conversation of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Welcome back to another episode, everybody. Today on Discover Your Inner Awesome, we have Amber McDonald. Amber is the CEO and co-founder of Indemnus, a startup that is enabling commercial drones to actually fly over people. So we're in the drone world now. Amber, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is a really, this will be a really interesting conversation, not just because of the specific industry you're in, but our topic today, which is how do you raise capital with no revenue, which I'm sure is on the mind of more than half of startup founders out there. So why is this on your mind and why is this important to you? Well, we're still doing it currently. We don't have any revenue. (laughs) So um, yeah, I mean, it's something that we've struggled with since our inception and we've, you know, we're making our way. Yeah, right on. Now, before we go into the, the weeds of that, let's take it back and look more at your history. So I, I will say this, you're probably the second person I know or now know who's from Alaska, but the other person I know, I, would never, I never met them when they were in Alaska. So you're the first person I've actually live spoken to in Alaska, which for everyone listening to this right now, we're recording this about 11 a.m. Central Time, which is what local time for you? Uh, Eight. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So that's not terrible, but I know you have to do a lot of business actually like in pretty particular, pretty strange hours for local time for you, but. Oh uh, yeah. There's been days we've woken up at, at two thirty three AM to hit a four o'clock meeting because East coast wants to start at 8 AM. Which is, yeah, which is crazy. <laughs> so have you lived in Alaska your whole life? And if so, um, you know, I think that that's very different from growing up, I'd say anywhere in the contiguous United States. Um, do you have a, do you feel like you have a different perspective being in such a different time zone? Um, I don't know if it necessarily has to do with being in a time zone, but yeah, I'm born and raised in Alaska, been here um, in Anchorage most of my life. And it's a, a different perspective just in general, because we have the same amount of people in our entire state that most people have in a section of their city. I mean, there's 600, 700,000 people in all of Alaska. That so. is, that is small. 
<laughs> I think Wyoming might have might have roughly the same amount uh, of people. So, okay. So was it more of like a environment growing up where everyone knows everyone? Well, my family's Alaska Native, and they're from Kodiak. It's a it's a small. They're from a small village on a big island, but ultimately everybody knew everybody growing up. Like you couldn't even walk down the street without someone telling your grandma, hey, she's over here, right? So yeah, <laughs> no, we have a really big family. My great grandma had 13 kids. The other one had 11. So wow. together there, there's eyes and ears everywhere you go. Yeah. So with that smaller environment then, or the everyone knows everyone sort of mentality, do you feel like that was something that, I guess, I guess, how do you feel that has shaped you today, given that you grew up in such a close-knit environment? Um, I think as an individual, it's made me very family-oriented. It, you know, my entire life revolves around what I can do for others. In a business perspective, it's all about sharing the catch. I mean, we grow up with values that when you succeed, your community succeeds. And personally, I have lived in other larger cities. I mean, I went to college out of state and came back. So I have had experience in bigger places. And it's, it's a different mentality. You know, you see somebody on the street in Seattle, you may not necessarily have the same reaction as if you see somebody on the street in Anchorage where you might buy them a coffee because they look cold. <laughs> so, so that's actually something that happens in Anchorage. Like you just buy Absolutely, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's I would say most of American culture is not like that. It's very individual focused. There's less emphasis on the community, uh, on the people as a whole. There's some there's a semblance of family values still, but I don't think it's that. You know, it, it's the person walking down the street is not my friend. It is there's a potential danger in a lot of places depending on where you are or perceived danger rather. It reminds me a lot of some more international cultures, like a lot of Asian cultures are very much uh, in this same respect. Uh, we recently had on the show, Alison Lee, uh, founder of a company called Hempster, and she was saying the similar thing in her culture where she comes from. Um, it's really a culture of like, you know, you kind of look out for your neighbor, uh, you mm -hmm. look out for the people around you, and everyone in some ways sort of like family, which impacts how business is done. So do you kind of feel like, Given that background now, you said you're, kind of, you're looking out for other people, but how would you say that, I guess, more specifically dictates how you lead or, or how you choose to lead your company? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it has a huge impact. We spend more time with the people we work with than anyone else in our lives, especially in a startup. I mean, you're working 12, 14, 16, sometimes, you know, 20 hours a day, seven days a week. And these are the people that they you have to have respect for one another and more than that you have to know that not everybody you never know what's going on in somebody's life right and we are a big family as a group there's six founders that started indemnis and we've been together me and alan the cto and founder we've we've worked together for 10 years I mean, a lot of us have been through everything together, death, marriages, divorces, babies, bailing people out of jail. I mean, you name it, it's happened. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some pretty, I mean, that last life event, I was not expecting. <laughs> now, is that you were getting bailed out of jail? No, 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 <laughs> no, no, not me. Absolutely. So um, kind of going through 
your past entrepreneurial experience, like Indemnus is not your first run at entrepreneurship. Um, what was your first experience? Even if you take it back to like your younger. Oh man, in life, I don't know, probably babysitting or mowing lawns as a child. I mean, I was always from a very, very young age out doing something to mm. make money. It didn't matter what it could be. My parents owned a janitorial business and I helped run their crews and they had, I mean, a lot of really large contracts here in Anchorage. And so very early on, you know, everything from helping family members with taxes to cleaning houses, watching kids, shoveling, mowing lawns. I, I was always out doing something and figuring out a way to make money. Why do you think that is? I mean, most kids are choosing to go like play in the yard, do something like socialize, right? I'm not saying you're antisocial by any means, but <laughs> why do you think you opted for the route of, let me see how I can enterprise? Um, hmm. So not to get too deep, but I grew up with a single mom mm -hmm. and I'm the oldest. And it, I guess maybe it was a survival tactic of, you know, this is what needs to be done and I'm going to help out to get us there regardless of what that takes. It didn't matter that I was eight or 10 years old. My mom worked nights running a janitorial business and she needed help. And I mean, I was running 15 member crews by the time I was 11 or 12. Hmm. So it's just, I, I just grew up in it. It's the way we lived. Oh, uh, and from your bio, what I've learned is that by age 21, you were supervising 150 employees. What company was that? And, and how did you end up leading a team of 150? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it was, a, it was a collective group over, over a period of time, but oh, okay. it, it grew from, so I started as an intern for a company here locally called First Alaskans Institute. And, you know, after the first summer, I actually ended up running the internship every year after that and it just grew and grew and grew and then ended up running large conferences overseeing programs and finance and we had community engagement projects in a lot of the communities around Alaska that I oversaw and it just it it continued to grow yeah well I don't I, really know how it formulated it was something <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't my degree it wasn't anything it just I climbed the ladder over the course of time yeah, well, you know, your, your track record so far really does seem to be people and community oriented, um, personally and professionally. Um, I, I do have to say, in seeing the names of your children, those are like four of the coolest names of children. <laughs> Donna, Lucian, Marvel, and Jay Mason. Those yes, are fantastic Sienna. names. Oh, and Sienna. Or, oh, Sienna instead of Shauna, sorry. Sienna, yeah, yeah. Lucian, Marvel, and Jay Mason. That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> So you are, you know, you get a bachelor's in journalism and public relations, right? Mm -hmm. You have a company called Big Dipper Clothing at one point, which is um, screen, screen printing, printing, right? Yeah. How you're involved in drones. Can you bridge that gap for me? So, yeah, absolutely. I... First of all, when I, when I went off to college, I wanted to be a neonatal surgeon. I love math, science, all things related to physics. I mean, I was just a complete nerd. I actually got pregnant in college and ended up 
having a child and then looked at the syllabus and said, okay, what is the quickest route to graduation? Let's mm-hmm. go get a journalism degree. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I changed my, Sienna, you, you would have had yeah, okay. yeah. And so I changed my major and finished my degree very quickly. I actually had already finished my first year and a half of college before I graduated high school. So it didn't take me very long. I, I had taken dual classes at night when I was in um, my senior year of high school. So it didn't take me that long to finish and I needed to just get it done. But I always had a love for doing things sort of outside of the box and very technologically affiliated. And from there, I went on to work for First Alaskans and also Grow Big Dipper Clothing out of our, it started in our garage and and now today it's a, a thriving business here in Alaska. I'm still a part owner in that. I just, I'm not in the day to day. But I also, on the side, had this video production company with Alan, and we used to do broadcast services and video production for clients across the state. And Alaska had a film incentive, and they were flying, we were flying drones for different companies that were doing reality shows up here in Alaska. And I did the business side, Alan did the, the film operator side, and he was flying drones for a company called Animal Planet. Discovery Channel, and they kept crashing. And so he started looking into all of the different existing systems that were on the market. And after testing them, found that none of them worked. He came up with an idea one day, and you know, all of the co founders, there's six co founders of Indemnus, and we all met through the film industry being affiliated. And he came up, Alan came up with an idea and approached a couple of us and away it went. That's kind of how Indemnus came to be. So we weren't necessarily all drone operators. We were just really smart kids and that loved tech. And, you know, each one of us had a very strong, we were all really good at the things that we did. Hmm. So I was good at business. Alan was good at tech. Mackenzie was good at material stuff. Mitch was a, uh, I mean, a first class machinist. The guy has parts on the Hubble telescope. You know, he's, he's insanely talented. We had a software guy and then a, a web guy. So together, we kind of all charged forward with this idea and got funding for it. And that's when we were able to hire other people on to help us make it reality. So you get some initial funding for the concept. And can you, for timeline purposes, uh, at what point was that? Was it this year, last year? Yeah. So taking it actually a step back, the way that we got the funding required us solving a technological breakthrough that had never been done. And in the beginning, it was in 2014 is kind of when the idea formulated. And the beginning of 2015 is when we, I guess the end of 2014 is when the idea formulated. 2015, we officially became an LLC with six members. And we had a tiny little place in the back of a, a sandwich shop, actually. <laughs> and it was because it had three-phase power, and we were able to get a, an RF welder. And so we knew we had this concept, but we needed a material that was lightweight and a material that could be easily packed and withstand a lot of energy. There is nothing on the market 
that we could find on Google, eBay, Amazon, you name it. You have nylon, um, carbon eggs. You know, we tried, we tried everything under the sun. Everything blew to shreds. So we ended up reading a military report that they were trying to make inflatable airplane apparatuses. So like inflatable wings, things like that. And they had sort of done the same thing. And as far as put a large amount of pressure into these materials. And so they had a lot of the research. Well, there was a material that they were using called Dyneema. And they were able to make it work partially. But the base strength was the bonding method that they did. They were only able to achieve about a 20% bond. And so we took their study and we actually refined it. And today we can bond that material to a base strength stronger than itself. And so the material actually rips before our bond rips. And that was our material breakthrough that allowed us to really get off our feet and get our initial funding because it's something that had never been done before in the world. Dyneema has been around forever. They're a $10 billion company out of the Netherlands, DSM Dyneema. It's used for all sorts of things. It's number one use is ballistic armor. But nobody had ever figured out a way to bond it to that strength. And so away we went bunch of kids in Alaska making inflatable apparatuses. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, it's like people in like what their 20s and early 30s, it seems like taking on this huge challenge. So can you kind of just, I guess, let's, let's appropriately paint the picture here. What is the drone landscape like? And like, what's Indemnis's position in this industry? So you kind of alluded to it just now, but can you first explain, okay, here's what's here's what the landscape is with drones and here, here's where the problem lies that we're solving. So where we're at currently with the industry is that, so there are a lot of different commercial uses for drones. You have everything from public safety, infrastructure, inspection, agriculture, you have drone delivery. So that could be items or, you know, Uber eats is going to deliver your sandwich in 20 minutes. The number one roadblock to that is government regulation. So without, without a mechanism to safely be able to prove that you can fly over people, the FAA has said this will not occur. And it's one of the first times that they've actually taken a proactive approach. Usually they say that aviation laws are written in blood, right? So this is the first time that, not the first, one of the first times that the FAA has said that until you can prove that you can bring a 20-pound hunk of metal or 50-pound hunk of metal down if it fails at a level of impact energy that's not going to hurt or kill somebody, there will be no commercial flight over people. Because the reality is, is that even a 10-pound drone, 10, 20, 30, 50, whatever it is, if that hits you at 400 feet falling out of the sky above your head, that's not just hurting you. That's killing you. Yeah. I mean, even and like a penny, if it's dropped from that high, it will, will hurt you. It will hurt. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, with that, the FAA has said, here are the three ways to achieve flight over people. You can build to a type certificate where, like a Boeing aircraft, they go through all the testing to be able to prove that if the technology fails, it's not going, it's, it's not going to fail, right? The chances of it failing are very low. Two, you can do frangible materials, and that's being able to prove that if something fails and it falls and hits you, that it's not going to hurt you. So foam or magnets that fall apart, things like that. The problem with frangible materials from a commercial standpoint is that it's not very, the, the limitations 
of being able to put a large camera or sensor, you know, you're talking about one to two pound drones. They're not going to be able to lift your, your box of chocolates or whatever. Um, and the third way is a risk mitigation tool. So if and when the drone fails, how are you going to prevent it from hurting somebody? And that's where we come in. So Indemnis does UAV safety solutions, and that includes parachutes, so aerodynamic decelerators, and also airbags. And from there, you know, we were able to look and say, this is a need in the market, and we have solved a technological breakthrough to be able to help contribute to this market and help grow it. And that's kind of where we, we took off and decided to run with it seeing the potential of where it's going to be. And we knew four years ago that we were probably 10 years out from fully enabling this market. Mm. So it's, so to just like recap there, the reason why you don't see drones flying overhead every day for commercial uses is because there's too much of a risk of them falling out of the sky and hurting people. And what indemnis is tackling is safe delivery or safe um, fly, over, overhead flying essentially. Um, by mitigating that risk. Yeah, we refer to ourselves sort of as the airbag for the sky. You don't really want to use it, but when it happens, you're glad that you have an airbag in your car. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's, that's, that's a good way to describe it. Um, and it, I just thought, one other thing I want to comment on that I find interesting, earlier we were learning more about you, talked about how you kind of grew up with the mindset of looking out for others. And I think that's like literally what this company is is looking out for others in terms of their safety. So let's dive in now to the more of the topic, which is raising capital with no revenue. So you talked about how you got some money for the idea early on. Can you take us through that process and, and how does that come about? Yeah, so very early on, Alan had this idea and it was a very sketched out concept. And this was actually before we came up with the material technology breakthrough, but he had gotten a offer to basically buy out the concept for the drone industry for $30 million. And from there it was like, okay, whoa, why is this so, you know, without a product, without a, anything tangible really, except IP. So we did very early on file a patent on legal zoom <laughs> and you know it was and that's not a plug i have nothing to do with them i just it just but, the but way you we were able it. to pull it off that that simply yeah um and so we had the ip around it and we had an idea and then from there we knew that we had something if there were people that were willing to pay in the beginning that, that there was value and so we charged on to do the material technology side of it and as soon as we figured out a way to weld dyneema we went to friends and family and people that we knew. I mean, we're in Alaska, so with the oil industry, there are a lot of like wealthy middle-class people that have the ability to give, you know, fifty, hundred thousand dollars to startups. And so we went with this idea to people that had worked in the oil industry and who understood engineering and the technology and the physics behind what we were trying to do. And we very simply explained it. And from there, we used a safe model. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Yeah. The the simple note. agreement. Yeah. yeah. Simple agreement for future equity. And we took that and we started raising money with the safe model. And that was, we went around and we gave pitch after pitch after pitch after pitch after pitch, after pitch <laughs> to 
friends, family, people that had connected us. And it just grew within the Alaska community. And that's how we got our first, I guess, funding and foot in the door was literally giving a multitude of lunch pitches to anybody who would walk through the door and listen to us. And, you know, if they had, if they were an accredited investor and they could prove that and be able to contribute, you know, 25,000, 50,000, 100,000, then we wanted them to just sit down and hear us out. Mm. And we pieced it together over the course of time. What was that initial round then? What was the total amount? Um, the initial round, I think, was $1.5 million. Wow. That's that impressive. And it was so, concept at that point, right? Concept and a patent. So we did take in a small amount, 327000 from friends and family, I guess, at the beginning of that. And so that, I guess, you could consider was our initial round. Okay. But the, yeah. So that was pre-safe. That was just people that wanted to be a part of the journey. Mm-hmm. And we incorporated in September 2016, and that's when we started taking on. So I guess technically that would be our sure. second round, but yeah. Now, you know, one thing I want to come back to real quick is you mentioned that $30 million, was it $30 million uh, mm-hmm. buyout offer? Yeah. Um, <laughs> how do you say no to $30 million, <laughs> especially when you're, again, it's, it's, it's a concept. Yeah, you know, I I don't know. We're a bunch of ambitious individuals and it's been a long journey, but it's one of those things that when you believe in something and you can see the future and that early on you have an interest at that level, it's like, okay, then why? Mm-hmm. Then what are you seeing? And we were able to tell the story in a way that the people that joined us very early on, they, they, and still now today, I mean, they see that journey and now it's becoming reality. So, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to tell the story today than it was three years ago. Yeah. Well, and you know, you said you were pitching anyone who would walk through the door and I will just to respond to what you just said there, I'll say, you know, 30 million might be a lot, but you're kind of saying, okay, well, this, this might have a ton more value if someone right now is only is saying 30 million, so we should probably pursue this further. Um, so as you mentioned there, you were pitching anyone who was viable and was walking through the door. Can you talk through how your pitch developed and evolved over time then and, and how you were able to hone it in and make it better? Yeah, absolutely. So in the beginning, a lot of it was based around our welding technology and the ability to weld Dyneema. We actually, our first generation product was something completely different than what we're selling today. But we knew that we wanted to produce safety systems for the drone market. There was no tangible evidence or research or numbers out there on how big the drone market was going to be. But we knew that if there was even 100,000 people that were flying commercial drones over populated areas, this was something that had to be mandated, just like a seatbelt in a car or an airbag. It was a safety solution that it wasn't just one or two people were going to utilize. You know, it's a a global need. It's a standard that has to be set across the globe because you can't have large hunks of metal flying around that could potentially hurt or kill somebody. And 
so from there, we were able to sort of tell the future of where we thought it was going to go. But a lot of it was around our welding technology, our IP. So we did, like I said, secure our IP really early on. And for us, that was a huge benefit in selling our story. And then the fact that they were getting in at a time where it was super valuable for the potential of the market. I mean, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry that is untapped. We're not talking about a couple million. We're realistically, the industry is a massive market that is untapped. And so for our early investors that saw it, they were willing to join us on our journey. And if they didn't see it, then, you know, no harm, no foul. You don't, it doesn't hurt you to spend 30 minutes pitching to somebody. Yeah. And Especially because they might know someone who would make more sense for, or, or you might get some feedback that helps you. I think, so a couple of things that you've brought up so far, you, you have the defensibility in your IP. Um, I also really like that you talked about, you were conveying your vision for the future. Like this is where we think the industry is headed. That's something that, you know, and the entrepreneurs that, that we work with here at Startup Hype Man and looking at what are they pitching to investors is that it's not about, hey, where are you today? Like, cause they're not, they're not buying yeah. into your product today. They're buying into no. your vision for the future. So I really like that you mentioned that, that it's, you were saying, hey, this is where the industry is headed. Like it's, this needs, this is gonna be a standard essentially, just like, like we're, we're bringing what seatbelts did for cars, we're gonna be bringing to drones. Now, that can be a tough thing to sell, essentially, like, or I, I guess like internally, right? How do you pitch that vision when you're like, oh, shit, I don't know if it's actually gonna happen, but we wanna make it happen. So can you talk through being able to like really sell that vision through? So you have to believe it yourself, first of all. And Alan, our founder and current CTO, you know, him and I have worked together, like I said, for 10 years and we had, we had a relationship where we push and pull each other in all ways. We fill the gaps that, that the other one doesn't satisfy. And so it really was, I guess, a couple things. Finding the perfect team to be able to make that vision believable. We had all the tools necessary to actually be able to tangibly trace the dots on how we were going to get there and show our traction for the future. And so believing that and saying, okay, here are the steps we're going to take to get there and breaking it down and explaining to them and, and really, I guess the biggest thing I can say is selling it to yourself. And you got to look in the mirror over and over and know that there, there is no part of, of running a startup and raising money that is easy. People are going to tell you no. People are going to tell you they're crazy, you know, that you're crazy. They're going to say, how on earth? Do you think you're walking through the door and trying to say that your company is worth? I mean, we were raising at a $15 million valuation cap on the safe. <laughs> and, if it was you know, Shark Tank, they would have they <laughs> laughed you out of the building. Yeah, they, I mean, but you know what? Today, as we stand, we were able to raise $3.4 million at a $15 million valuation cap. And we have successfully raised... Uh, you know, over half a million at a $25 million valuation cap in the last couple months. And we're doing that because we are not just, we don't just believe in it. We also are putting our money where our mouth is. Mm -hmm. And we set really small milestones 
and we achieved them. And then we showed that we could achieve them. And we didn't throw it out there and say, we're going to be this big company in 10 years. We drew out a path and we said, here's how we're going to get there. And here's the things we've done to get there. And here's our next milestone. So in three months, you're going to get a newsletter from me that says, this is what we accomplished because this is what I'm telling you I'm going to do in the next three months. So there are very short-term goals that we promised our investors. And as we continued to hit them, you know, we had investors that continued each round to give us more money. And with our momentum, that also, it's a lot easier to go into the room and say, I've already raised $1.5 million for this than it is to say, I have $10,000 in the bank. <laughs> right. Yeah. The momentum starts to build. Was it a strategic move to set like small achievable milestones so that way you could easily show progress versus yeah. like, Hey, six months from now we might have this. Absolutely. I mean, 110%. So in my previous life before Indemnus, I was on a, a large holding company, native corporation board of directors, and we had lost a lot of money. And when I joined the board, they were losing, they were like $10 million negative that year. And the board actually overtook management and rehired all of the executives and did exactly that in small milestones. I mean, we met almost daily to, to be able to, to track the progress and be able to prove out the concept. And so that was a lot of experience that I gained that allowed me to, to really do this from a startup level and go through the same process. So, okay, we're here today, but we know where we want to be. But in order to get there, Tomorrow's goal, you know, might just be, or this week's goal might just be to bring in $25,000. Like, how are we going to bring in $25,000? And, you know, when you have a crew and you're responsible, not just for your own paycheck, but you're responsible for 10 other people's mouths to feed and their families and their kids, and, you know, it, it perpetuates, it keeps you up at night. It's like, how am I going to get there? And so the easiest way for me was to break it down. Hmm. And that's why we did it that way. Yeah. So currently, as of recording this episode, where are you in your fundraising process and how much more do you have to go? Um, I mean, we have, so we are doing a crowdfunding campaign on Republic. And people ask us, if you've raised this money, why are you going that route? Where we've raised over $400,000 on our crowdfunding. We'd like to get it as close to a million as we can and fill it out. But part of the reason we decided to do that is to create the best value for our shareholders before we took a Series A. So to give us just that many more months of runway before we take a larger investment, because we do have people that would like to, to join us on our journey at a larger scale, but we want to make sure that we so recently, and this is the first time that I've actually publicly announced this. We just got an approved patent on our welding technology, Congrats. and that is a huge increase in our IP portfolio. And so, with that, I mean, I think there's a lot of potential for us to to be able to monetize that, license it, or in some way, shape, or form, create more value with that. So, before we moved down that road of taking a larger investment, we we wanted to, our goal was to get a waiver and it still is to get a waiver before we, we do that and secure the ability to be able to provide commercial flight over people 
to our clients and say, yes, we can do this. We've created a product that meets the FAA standards and we can do this. So we've raised in our current position, we're still looking for about 2 million, I think is what we'll continue to raise. And we, we bring in through our safe model, a couple hundred thousand dollars a month. And we have goals that we set and we'll work our way through our, our number one priority is to make sure that, you know, we don't eat into our runway. Mm -hmm. So as a startup, the one thing that we had to learn the hard way was be cognizant of your runway because sometimes you're not going to be able to raise as much in a month and you might miss your goal. So make sure that you always have that buffer. That is the biggest piece of advice I can ever give somebody is that, yeah, don't so, let that slip away. As So at this stage now, you said you're, you're going to help a couple hundred thousand dollars a month in roughly at this point. You got a couple million more to go. I have two questions for you. Yeah. One is how is the challenge different now versus earlier on? Because I assume it's not just, it's not a cakewalk. It, it might be a little bit easier, but the challenge is a little bit differently. So before I ask the second question, could you uh, address that? So I would say actually in some ways, so it's, it's different. It's not easier at all. It's not necessarily harder because we've refined our process and we've gotten a lot better at, at, being able to tell our story, but it is, as the drone industry expands, so do the negative comments and so do, um, there's more news, there's more danger, people are, are more risk adverse. And it's, I, it's not easier. It's very different, but it's not easier at all. Mm. Yeah, so okay, so the industry is getting more well-known, which is creating yeah. different perceptions than may have existed before. Yeah. And, you know, it's the fear of will regulation ever allow this to occur? That's a really big fear that we hear a lot. Um, how, how are you guys going to, you know, there's a lot of companies, big companies that took in investment very early on and did it maybe before their time. And so, you know, you have Airware that just lost a lot of money for their investors. Precision Hawk is another really big company that laid off a whole bunch of people recently. So there's a lot going on in the industry that makes larger investors a little scared. And as we've grown, we have new one thing with the safe, you know, we have new SEC laws because now we're doing a crowdfunding campaign. We have to only take from accredited investors and show we're publicly soliciting investments. So it's a harder, harder feat to make sure that we're validating that they're accredited investors. I mean, there's a lot of back-end stuff and a lot of administrative paperwork that goes into to raising money that sometimes people don't think about. And the larger you get, the more bogged down that process becomes. Mm -hmm. So those would be our, our hurdles versus before. Yeah. The other question I have is, you know, you got the crowdfunding campaign now. Mm -hmm. Through all the money you've raised across different groups, do you, or at what point do you get, start to worry about over diluting yourselves as founders? Yeah. Um, we worry about that a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's a balance. You, you want to make sure that your baby succeeds. So you're willing to give up 
a lot for that. But at the same time, you know, at what point are you giving up a percentage that that is is it has it been worth your time all these years? And we've done we've been exceptionally fortunate that we set our valuation cap high and we were able to bring in money at a high valuation cap. But our biggest fear is you know, what if we we don't achieve revenue on target and we do a series A at a lower amount and it it's it's good for our investors because they will get a lower valuation, but it would not be good for us as founders. So that is a driving factor to keep us on our path of achieving profitability. Absolutely. As Notorious B.I.G. says, more money, more problems. <laughs> uh, before we wrap up, can you let our listeners know where they can learn more about Indemnus, learn more about you, get in touch with you? Yeah. So Indemnus, I-N-D-E-M-N-I-S dot com is our website. You can also go to our Republic campaign, republic.co slash Indemnus, I-N-D-E-M-N-I-S. And, you know, if, if people have specific questions either about how to invest in Indemnus or even if, you know, somebody is starting a company and wants help, I'm usually pretty receptive and available. You can find me on our website, info at Indemnus.com, and it, it will make its way to me pretty quickly. And I'd be happy to connect with anybody. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So to wrap up, we'll each give uh, sort of our top line takeaway answer to today's topic question, which was, how do you raise with, how do you raise capital with no revenue? I'll go first here. So to me, um, I think it comes down to a couple things. Uh, hearing what you had to say and combining that with my own you know, knowledge of the ecosystem, I think it's really about making sure that you are conveying what is the opportunity at large and thinking beyond I think it's very, it's, I think entrepreneurs get so caught up in like the day to day of what they're doing that they think that's what people are buying into, but it's not that at all. It's like, you know, if you're artificial intelligence, but today you don't have the AI component built in, what you're pitching to investors is an AI company um, because that's what you're building towards and that's what they're buying into. The other part uh, that I thought was really smart you mentioned was being strategic about setting those winnable milestones. So you can show progress along the way, even if the revenue hasn't come in yet. Amber, top line takeaway, how do you raise capital with no revenue? I would say top line takeaway is define your story, refine your pitch, and practice it. Practice it, practice it, practice it. I don't know how many times I have practiced it in front of cameras, mirrors, other people, gotten feedback, but ultimately, Define it and go with it. People are going to give you negative comments. They're going to tell you what you should do. They're going to tell you you're crazy. They're either going to support you or they're not. It's your vision. Own your passion and, you know, put your all into it or you're not going to be successful. Music to my ears, given what goes on at Startup Hype Man and how we support companies. So I'm glad to hear you say that. Thank you, Amber, for joining the show today. Thank you. Thank you very much. That wrapped up our conversation. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the absolute best compliment you can give is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people can discover their inner awesome. And if you want to extend that compliment further, while you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show 
on whatever platform you listen, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or the various other networks in which you can find this show. For full show notes, references, and resources, as well as access to the over 100-episode archive, visit the podcast official site, www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. And remember, for tips, strategies, and ideas on how to build up your company's hype with a message that sings, visit StartupHypeMan.com. Season 10's theme song is from Sir the Baptist. The song is called Dance with the Devil. It is off his album Saint or Sinner, which you can grab on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, and anywhere else digital music is distributed. That'll tie a bow on this one. Thank you again to this week's guest for joining us. I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to Startup Hype Man's Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today. It's a dance with the devil.